Hi, you're listening to History of Gore. I'm writer and researcher James Hoare. From the team behind History of War and all about history magazines, History of Gore reveals the weird and gruesome side of the past, from burial rites and early medicine, to chemical weapons and the occult. If you enjoy the podcast, or even if you remain stubbornly indifferent to it, seek out All About History on Twitter, Facebook, and or Instagram, and let us know. The story of Ava Peron is one that most people know from Evita, a musical that begins and ends with the quote-unquote circus, oh what a show, of her death, in which Shay the narrator scathingly opines in that opening banger. And I'm going to sing this, I'm really, really sorry. You let down your people, Evita. You were supposed to have been immortal. That's all they wanted. Not much to ask for. But in the end, you could not deliver. Now, not for the first time, Andrew Lloyd Webber was full of shit. With Evita's death, she attained a level of influence that transcended anything she achieved in her life. Her memory became a myth. And isn't that immortality? Like a saint, Ava Peron suffered and was martyred. And like a saint, her body refused to decay. Like a saint, the faith of her followers was sorely tested until a miracle returned Santa Evita to them. But that journey is bizarre and gruesome. It goes from the military coup that brought Juan Peron to power in Argentina to Ava's death and embalming at the hands of what I think is the world's creepiest medical professional. It includes the battle for her corpse that claimed the life of a president and involved a Nazi on a secret mission. And it contains allegations of necrophilia and paedophilia. Are you intrigued? I hope so. There's a lot to get through, so I'm going to try and whiz through a potted biography. Juan Peron fits quite neatly into the long and depressing tradition of Latin American strongmen, with one foot in democratic populism and another in autocracy. He was everything to everyone, and that sort of political flexibility saw him win three presidential elections between 1946 and 1955, and then in 1973. More opportunist than ideologue, he had his political awakening as a military attaché to Mussolini's Italy in the 1930s and was thrilled by Duce's ability to mobilise the Italian population along military lines. Peron entered government as part of a military coup against the unpopular and corrupt regime of President Ramon Castillo in 1943. This junto was called the United Officers Group, or the Colonels. And despite his key role in the coup, Peron was not well liked and he was shuffled off into the Department of Labour. He was effectively sidelined. The position had no prestige. So he took the initiative and he started to build his own political power base. Siding with the unions and the socialists, Peron was able to pass a number of popular bills to protect workers' rights. And he made sure that if they didn't bear his name, then he would be closely associated with them. Suddenly, Peron was a player. The Department of Labour grew to ministerial level he took on more power and influence. And around this time, he met a radio actress called Ava Duarte, now better known by diminutive Evita. Born in the sticks as the illegitimate daughter of a wealthy rancher, Ava Duarte was a grafter. She pulled herself up from the dirt using every tool in her arsenal. 
First, she ran off with a musician to Buenos Aires, and then she built a career as a model and actress, dyeing her hair blonde and bedding whoever she had to in order to advance socially. She met Colonel Perón at a fundraising gala for the victims of San Juan earthquake and caught from him the political bug. Now, Perón's popularity with Descomisados, which means the shirtless, Argentina's poor and working class, was beginning to spook the junta, who saw him as a threat to the president. They removed Perón from office in 1945 and placed him under arrest. It turned out that it was better to have the peacocking great fascist on the inside pissing out than rather on the outside pissing in. In response to the arrest, the unions took to the street. Up to 350,000 people gathered outside the Casa Rosada, the seat of the Argentine government, to demand Perón's release. Now, the common version of this story, as seen in the musical, is that Ava Duarte organised this herself, but historians find that deeply unlikely. She was very unpopular at this stage, both within Perón's cabal and within the radio industry and Bay's arrest had suddenly pulled the rug out from under her. In fact, Perón's release was thanks to the threat of mass action from his union allies. One thing's for certain, though. At this stage, at least, Perón and Duarte were genuinely in love. The couple married that same year, and in 1946, Juan Perón ran for president with Evita at his side. She proved an asset in winning over women's groups and using her radio show as a pulpit from which to preach the Peronist creed. She was highly divisive. The working class recognised her and loved her from her radio soaps, but the military and the middle class thought she was a parvenu with ideas above her station, her radio station. Fortunately, that was pretty much Peron's power base. As First Lady, Evita campaigned hard for her pet causes. She set up her own charity in her own name, and government funding was redirected from established organisations and towards Perón's new folly. There's no denying that the Ava Perón Foundation did an enormous amount of good, effectively becoming an entire shadow welfare state that enabled her to correct the vast inequalities in Argentinians' health and social care, but it was funded by mafia tactics. As well as lottery money and taxes, Organisations were pressured into giving it financial support at the risk of dire consequences. Already Evita's reputation was becoming somewhat saintly. She kissed the poor, lepers and the incurably sick, and she laid hands. After women were given the vote in Argentina in 1947, she created the female Peronist Party, mobilising Argentinian womanhood to give her husband a landslide victory in the 1951 presidential election. She even considered running for vice president. Though Evita eventually declined the role, and this was probably due to pressure from her husband, who had one eye on the outraged Argentine military, for whom this would be a step too far, it has entered her mythology with all the pseudo-religious pomposity available as the renunciation. Unfortunately, Evita's star was no longer in the ascent. She had advanced cervical cancer, and although the diagnosis was initially withheld from her by one, she was fainting regularly and bleeding heavily. She knew something was up, and months after the so-called renunciation, she underwent a secret radio hysterectomy, but it was too late. In July 1952, Evita joined her husband to celebrate his victory and his second term, but under her fur coat was a frame of wire and plaster to help her stand. She was doped to the gills with painkillers before she went out and she topped up again when she got home. 
In lieu of vice-presidency, she was given the title of spiritual leader of the nation. As if this wasn't grim enough, in 2010 a neurosurgeon at Yale University Medical School, Daniel Nihonson, proposed in a paper for neurosurgical focus that her rapid decline may have been the result of a lobotomy, after which she stopped eating and lost weight at an alarming pace. Nijinson obtained x-rays of a skull taken after her death that showed it had been drilled into, either to dull the pain or to curb her increasingly erratic behaviour, or so he reckoned both. In the months before Evita's death, she had given increasingly incendiary speeches, castigating enemies and traitors, and had allegedly ordered 5,000 pistols and 1,500 machine guns in order to arm the workers' militia. For Juan, who sometimes struggled to keep his critics in the military on side, this would have been too much. Nugent-san spoke to colleagues of Evita's surgeon, James Poppin, one of whom, a nurse, admits that a lobotomy took place without Ava's consent. She claims that doctors created a makeshift operating theatre in the palace and performed under armed guard. Wampurum wasn't entirely unfeeling, though. He had Poppin practice the operation on prisoners first to make sure that Evita would survive. Ava Perron died at 8.25pm on Saturday, the 26th of July, 1952. She was aged only 33. In cinemas, movies stopped showing. In restaurants, patrons were asked to leave with their meals half-eaten. And on government buildings, flags were flown at half-staff. The crowd outside the presidential palace extended for ten blocks in each direction, and during the transport of her body, eight people were crushed to death and over 2,000 sought hospital treatment from the press of bodies as Argentines turned feral in their need to be close to the remains of Santa Rivita. The grief was total. It was demonstrative, performative phenomena. The default position in the West was sneering in suspicion. The Peron regime was characterised by his close ties to Europe's last fascists, Spain's Francisco Franco in particular, and his control of the media, his heavy-handed attitude to critics, and his shielding of Nazi and Croatian nationalist war criminals. Commentators viewed his policies as cynical populism, a bit of socialism here, a bit of nationalism there, whatever it took to keep Juan Peron personally in power. As you can probably tell, I agree with that assessment. Testament to the wafer-thing content of Peronism is that later on extreme left-wing and extreme right-wing factions of Peronists sprung up. The leftists were basically Marxist revolutionaries and the rightists were pretty much full-bore fascists and both groups had a big enough pick-and-mix bag of glib Peron soundbites and proclamations to claim orthodoxy. With World War II still very much fresh in the mind for Western Europeans, Argentina's foaming adoration for the Peron duo sent up a fair few red flags. Evita's 1947 Rainbow Tour is a case in point. She received a riotous reception in Catholo-fascist Portugal and Spain, an appropriately grand but not OTT reception in the Vatican and was protested by Italian socialists as a fascist, a correctly proportioned reception in France but was snubbed by the French elite, she cancelled her trip to Britain when George VI refused to grant her an audience and she was pelted by rocks and tomatoes in Switzerland. Evita's suffering may have been over, but her story wasn't. Her death made of a martyr. Within days, the Vatican was flooded with letters calling for her to be canonised, but it pointed out that the process could only begin 50 years after her death. Even before her passing, though, 
Spanish pathologist Dr. Pedro Ara was commissioned to prepare an embalming. Like some holy relic, the Peron regime wanted Santa Evita on display so that her magic touch, her popularity of the workers and with women especially, would continue to fuel the engine of government. An American publication claimed that his work began on a deathbed, and Dr. R instructed her medical team to withhold any pain relief that would interfere with the embalming chemicals. In Dr. R's retelling, her physician closed her eyes and left the room. He handed the keys to Dr. R, and then he took over. The transition from hospice to morgue was instantaneous. Dr. Ara has taken on a reputation as a bit of a ghoul. He was a Hannibal-style artiste who perfected what he called his art of the death with hundreds of cadavers. One, the 12-year-old daughter of one of his Cordoba Medical College colleagues, was prepared so magnificently that she was dressed and seated at the dinner table every night. His other showpiece was the head and shoulders of an elderly beggar that he carried around in a case like an organic bust. Asked how long Ava's body would keep, the necromancer frothed. When I have finished with the body, it will never decompose. It will remain forever beautiful and graceful as she is now. As a quick fix for her 13 days lying in state in a glass-topped coffin, Dr. Ara replaced her blood with a mixture of alcohol and glycerine. This was the common cocktail for an open casket funeral prior to the discovery of formaldehyde in the late 19th century. The alcohol acts as a preservative and the glycerine stops the body from dehydrating, which is something to remember when you've next had a few jars. Her internal organs and brain were left alone. He then filled the coffin with detoxidant tablets to prevent the soft tissue from being plagued by microbes and insects. Then a maid entered, removed her red nail polish and replaced it with clear nail polish. She was dressed in a white tunic her hair was styled, and her brother, Juan Duarte, entered to cut a single lock to take back to their mother. She wore a brooch of the symbol of Peron's party. A rosary was clasped in her hands, her gift from the Pope during the Rainbow Tour, and her body was draped with the blue and white flag of Argentina. The coffin lay atop a nest of lavender and white orchids, and was opened only to wipe the condensation from the glass lid. At one point, they propped the lid open slightly to stop the condensation from building up, but this was against Dr. Ara's express wishes. He had been firm that she should not be exposed to the air. Once her 13 days of public beatification were over, Ava was moved to Dr. Ara's laboratory and drained of the glycerine alcohol solution through incisions in her neck and heels. For a year, she was submerged repeatedly in a 150-litre bath of acetate and potassium nitrate, to build up a film of hard transparent plastic over her skin, layer by layer. She was injected with a mixture of formal, a formaldehyde water solution, thymol, a bactericidal and fungicidal with moistening effects, and alcohol. It was Dr. Ara's own delicate preservation mix. The rumour mill began to churn almost immediately. Some claimed that Dr. Ara had replaced her body with a waxwork, others said it was a mannequin. Some said that it was a composite of Ava's real remains and a model, while the most elaborate conspiracy theory held that it was in fact a corpse of someone else, given reconstructive surgery and the image of the late First Lady. These rumours grew so loud and problematic for the regime that Dr. Arrow was forced to allow a commission to subject the body to X-ray, comparison of her fingerprints and teeth, all to rule that it was indeed the genuine article. Ava was to lie in state in a specially constructed monument some 450 foot high, that's higher than the Statue of Liberty, and made from 50,000 tonnes of white marble. 
It was specially designed by the Italian sculptor Leone Tomassi, who since 1950 had worked for the Eva Peron Foundation. The monument was never built, and following Peron's overthrow, Tomassi's statues of the couple were broken down and tossed in the river. In a ghoulish extra touch, it was proposed that Dr. Ara also embalm a representative of the Descamasados, plus the three branches of the Argentine armed forces who would hold her coffin aloft. Dr. Ara refused, saying he had enough on his plate with Evita herself. The embalming process took a year, and it cost the Argentine government an estimated hundred thousand US dollars. One Peron marvelled, I was under the impression that she was asleep. I could not take my eyes away from her breast, because I hoped at any moment to see her arise, and a miracle of life repeat itself. Santa Evita's rest was soon disturbed. Since her death, opposition to Peron had been emboldened. Terrorists bombed a Peronist rally, and graffiti mocked the First Lady with viva cancer. In response, the dictator riled up the mob and set them loose on opposition party headquarters. He also angered the Catholic Church, never a wise move in Latin America, by legalising prostitution and abortion. Despite his iron grip on the press, Catholic papers began to turn on Peron. His personal life was making him increasingly unpalatable too. Within months of Evita's death, Peron had started a relationship with the 13-year-old Nelido Rivas. Asked about her in the papers, he smirked that 13 wasn't an issue, because he wasn't superstitious. In 1954, Peron expelled two priests he believed personally responsible for his bad press from the country, and he called a crowd to rally to him in the Plaza de Mayo. But just as he'd first entered government on the back of a military coup, he was about to go out the same way. Argentine Navy jets, acting on orders from his opponents within the military, bombed the crowd, killing over 300 people, before they turned tail and sought asylum in Uruguay. In retaliation, Peron unleashed a further wave of violence, this time against his religious critics, and 11 churches were ransacked across Buenos Aires by the mob. In September 1955, a Catholic clique within the army and navy struck, and over three days forced Peron from the country to chants of Christ is victorious. He fled on a Paraguayan Navy gunboat, leaving his loves behind, the teenage Nelly Rivas and the perfectly preserved remains of Santa Rivita. The new junta, paradoxically identified as the liberating revolution in that they had overthrown an elected despot and pedophile and replaced him with an unelected military coup, needed to get rid of this white elephant sharpish. Evita was a magnet for Peronist opposition, and wherever she lay, opponents of the regime would congregate. One officer of the revolution visited the body, which was still at temporary rest in a special memorial chapel in Dr. Ara's lab, and remarked with disgust and barely concealed innuendo, it was the size of a twelve-year-old girl. Its skin was wax-like and artificial. Its mouth had been rouged, and when you tapped it, it rang hollow, like a store-window mannequin. The embalmer, Dr. Ara, hovered over it as if it was something he loved. Dr. Ara feared for his precious charge, and he frantically rang around the embassies to try and obtain political asylum for Eva Peron. The junta wanted her destroyed. But having come to power under the banner of restoring Roman Catholic values, they were unable to cremate her without special dispensation from the Pope, which he refused, being as the Holy Father is a messy bitch who lives for the drama. They fell back on conspiracy, and they ordered a second round of X-ray and identification to try and prove, or so they hoped, 
that Evita's body was a fake. They didn't get the results they wanted. And after Dr. Aro assured them proudly that she would never decay, they contemplated chucking her into a volcano, throwing her into the sea, or burying her under a runway on a remote island. In December 1955, the Chapel of Rest was stormed by Argentine marines, who lifted the coffin into a van and disappeared into the night, while Dr. Aro no doubt wailed hysterically. Even the marines couldn't be relied upon to behave rationally, and in the morning when the military intelligence officer entrusted with her care, Colonel Carlos Eugenio de Mori Koenig, returned to the truck which had lain overnight in a marine's compound, he found it surrounded by flowers and candles. The cult of Santa Revita was indeed potent. The Argentine novelist Eloy Martinez, who wrote a fictionalised account of Revita's afterlife, described this phenomenon as emotional necrophilia, and he pointed to examples in Argentina's history where acts that we associate with Catholic sainthood, the veneration of relics, become attached to political revolutionary figures instead. And you can see a similar effect with the memory of Che Guevara. According to Martinez, literal necrophilia was on the cards too. He alleged that Colonel Koenig became obsessed with her, and night after night he popped open the casket to interfere with Evita's body. Evita spent three weeks in a military storeroom before being moved to the military intelligence headquarters and transferred to a long wooden crate labelled radio equipment. The following year, decoy crates were fired off to Argentine embassies across Europe, while the real deal was sent to Bonn, the capital of West Germany, without the sitting ambassador's knowledge. Evita was now officially lost. Not even the new Argentine president, Pedro Eugenio Arambu knew her location, but his lawyer did, and in the event of Arambu's death, a letter containing a clue to her whereabouts would be dispatched to the sitting president. In total secrecy, Ava was buried in a cemetery in Milan under the name Maria Maggi de Magistris, an Argentine woman who had died five years earlier. The operation was led by Otto Skazeni, one of the many Nazi war criminals who had found refuge in Argentina after the Second World War as a security advisor to Juan and a bodyguard and possible lover to Eva. This wasn't his first visit to Italy, nor his most memorable, and the swashbuckling Nazi paratrooper had rescued Mussolini from his mountain prison in a daring raid in 1943. The search for Evita obsessed Peronists for decades. In 1970, the Montoneros, those extreme left-wing Peronist guerrillas I referred to earlier, shot Pedro Arambu for the crime of, I quote, profaning the body of Ava Peron by concealing her location. They had been frustrated when he admitted he was unable to tell them his whereabouts, but in taking their revenge, they released the lawyer's letter. In 1971, Evita was covertly exhumed and transported to Spain, where Peron now idled away. She arrived at the Peron residence in Madrid to be greeted by her husband, his new wife, two priests, the Argentine ambassador to Spain, and of course, the ever-devoted Dr. Ara. The doctor assessed the damage. Her clothing was wet and stained. Her nose had been flattened, her forehead scarred, an ear bent, a fingertip broken off during the junta's fingerprinting, and there was a crack in the plastic coating on her throat. Her hair, however, was pristine. In 1985, Eva's two sisters provided a more gruesome account of her condition claiming she had been struck with a hammer across the forehead and face. Her neck had been nearly severed in two. Her cheek, chest and arm were covered in cuts. Her kneecaps were fractured. A 
and there was a layer on tar on the soles of her feet from an attempt to destroy the body with quicklime. The following day, Dr. Ara dutifully restored the corpse, and then with the third Mrs. Perron, a former cabaret dancer named Isabel, they dressed the second Mrs. Perron in a new white gown. Her body was placed in a new casket that was stored, according to some accounts, in the living room, but in others, the attic. Perón returned to Argentina in 1973 to serve a third and final term as president after his 18-year exile. It was cut short by a series of heart attacks, and the final one killed him in the afternoon of the 1st of July 1974. He was 78. He lay in state alongside Evita in the presidential palace, her casket glass-topped and his closed, while an elaborate mausoleum was constructed for them. Wampuron's death gives us two macabre ironies by way of a postscript. In the first, whereas Ava Peron never served as vice president, Isabel Peron did, and so with one's death she became Argentina's president by default. She went further than her husband ever did for all his autocratic impulses. Despite her initial popularity, Isabel Peron began a purge of leftists from the government, which soon erupted into a vicious counterinsurgency against the Monteneros, and she did so in alliance with right-wing anti-communist death squads. Censorship increased, and a state of siege was declared which ended basic legal rights in favour of martial law. During the Dirty War, which lasted until 1983, an estimated 30,000 people disappeared, abducted or murdered by paramilitaries and security forces for their alleged ties to the left. These victims included students, teachers, writers, journalists, trade unionists and politicians. The Monteneros admitted that an estimated 5,000 of their men had been killed during the Dirty War, while the communist DRP gave a similar figure. In 1976, Isabel Perón was overthrown by that classic Argentine check on presidential overreach, the military coup, and she retired quietly to Spain to escape justice for her crimes committed during the Dirty War. If you remember the renunciation and the alleged lobotomy prior to Eva's death, the generals were terrified of Evita arming the workers and setting them loose on class enemies. Isabel Perón was more in line with their thinking and they got the vice president they deserved. In the second irony, Evita would forgo the next posthumous mutilation, and instead that would be endured by the remains of Juan Perón. Following the coup against Isabel, Juan and Eva were removed from the palace. The planned mausoleum was junked, and he was buried in the Perón family plot at Chacarita Cemetery, and Eva was entombed in the Duarte family tomb in a fashionable La Jaquilita Cemetery, both in Buenos Aires. Her casket was protected by a steel-walled vault 20 feet underground, armed and monitored by police. Beneath that lies Evita. It was paid for by the government, and one of her sisters was given the only key. In 1987, Juan Perón's crypt was robbed, his army cap and sword stolen, and his hands were severed with an electric saw. A letter sent to the Peronist party demanded a ransom of 8 million US dollars for their return. Arrests were made, but no charges filed. The hands were never recovered, and rumours abounded that they were stolen for use in Masonic rites, or to gain access to secret Swiss bank accounts. Nearly 70 years on, Evita remains unchanging, perfect, at the centre of a secular cult that endures in Argentina. In being mortal, she became immortal, an idea that has survived coup, Q, 
kidnap, disappearance, guerrilla war and musical theatre to remain simply whatever it is our acolytes want her to be. Meanwhile, the mutilated corpse of Juan Perón, the fascist and pedophile, rots away, shorn of his hands and dignity. His legacy is the dirty politics, murder and misrule of Argentina's tumultuous 20th century. And her legacy is to inspire. For more weird and wonderful history, albeit with less pedophilia, necrophilia and all the other stuff, check out the latest issues of History of War and All About History magazines, available in all good news agents and supermarkets and in Barnes & Noble in the US. To find out more, visit historyanswers.co.uk or shop for single issues and subscriptions at myfavoritemagazines.co.uk. And that's the UK spelling of favourite with an O and U. Sorry, America.